Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. The Immigration Minister has had enough. Just as we hit save on this episode, Robert Jenrick resigned, saying the emergency legislation the government announced to back up their policy of deporting some asylum seekers to Rwanda didn't go far enough. Stronger protections were needed, he said, to end the legal challenges getting in the way. But what about the bigger migration picture? The size and type of immigration to the UK has long been a hot political potato. And the latest figures only bring that into sharper and, for the government, more stressful focus. Imagine this is 10,000 more people coming into the UK than leaving it. Net migration. 30 or so years ago... Net migration was just under 80,000. That was in 1994 and 1995. But by the year 2000, it had doubled to just under 160,000. Around the Brexit referendum, 2016, it had doubled again to 311,000, which explains why so many people were shocked by the latest figures for 2022. No, that's not the Home Secretary's heart rate. That's 745,000 more people arriving into the UK than leaving it in the space of 12 months. A new record. Some think this is awful, some think this is wonderful, but what is actually happening underneath that headline figure? And what will the UK government's new plans, which they say will reduce immigration by a third, mean for an economy that needs all the help it can get? Migration to this country is far too high and needs to come down. And today we are taking more robust action than any other government before. Today's statement is an admission of years of total failure by this Conservative government Failure on the immigration system and failure on the economy. It is another example of the total chaos at the heart of this government. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, does the government's plan to cut immigration add up? A 
our wise owl on the subject is David Smith. Uh, David Smith, economics editor of the uh, Sunday Times. How long have you been at the Sunday Times, David? A very long time. I've been there more than 30 years. And how long has immigration been an argument in those 30 years? I would say that it didn't start to become an argument until within the last 15 years or so, I think. And obviously, it was a big argument around the time of Brexit. Mm. Until then, I think people had noticed that we were getting more net migration, in other words, more people coming in than leaving, which hadn't been a feature, I don't think, since the 1950s, when a lot of Commonwealth immigrants came Mm. uh, on request from UK employers to the UK the Windrush generation and so on. But it became an issue again after the opening up of uh, the EU to Eastern Europe and the opening up of the UK labour market to migrant workers from countries like Poland, particularly yeah. Poland, Hungary and so on. And this argument has had some wind up it recently with those latest immigration figures released by the Office for National Statistics. It was a couple of weeks ago. The figures that were very important back in 2016 when we had the vote for Brexit and then, you know, they were released during the, uh, the campaign showed net migration of just over 300,000. And that was thought to be an extremely high and perhaps unacceptably high uh, figure at the time. But the latest ones we've had showed that that was surpassed by a, a large margin in uh, 2022 when we had nearly 750,000 uh, of net migration. And in the latest 12 months, which is the uh, the 12 months to June of this year, when the number was 672,000. So we've moved from 300,000, which is regarded as too high, six or 700,000, which of course is, is a lot higher than that. Hmm. And that 600, 700,000 figure, we're talking here about legal migration. How does that compare to the sort of irregular migration that we read about when we see pictures of people coming across the channel in small boats? Yeah, well, we don't know entirely how much illegal migration is, but the one that's everybody focuses on, which of course is the small boats and which has driven the government's Rwanda policy, that is of the order of forty or 50,000 a year. So it is a fraction of the, uh, mm. the total of legal migration. Legal migration outstrips illegal migration by a very large margin. Yes. And the huge change from just a few years ago from, as you say, it being 300,000-ish a year net migration of much of the 2010s to, as you say, around six, 700,000 now. Do we know who makes up that figure and from where? Yes, we do. When we were in the EU and when we had freedom of movement, net migration was predominantly of EU citizens coming to the UK to work. Now, since 2019-20, when we formally left the EU that movement has gone into reverse. So at the moment, and in the latest year, we had just over 100,000 net emigration of EU citizens, a hmm. small amount of net emigration of British citizens, about you know just a few thousand, and a big net immigration of non-EU citizens, particularly from countries like India, Nigeria, so quite a lot from the subcontinent, quite a lot from Africa. And that number is, in the latest 12 months, is of the order of 800,000 or so. So a big shift in the in the flows that we've seen over the past few years. Now, for, I think initially when these very large numbers started to come through, then, uh, you know, the government could say, well, it's all about people fleeing the war in Ukraine. It's all about Hong Kong holders of British overseas passports who, who were allowed to come here. But that yeah. flow has dropped to a trickle. So that's not really driving the figures anymore. What's driving the figures are, non-EU workers. And I think part of that is driven by the government's visa rules. You know, that after 
Brexit, they were under a lot of pressure not to shut off the supply of migrant workers. And so we had the visa scheme, but also of students. You know, a lot of British universities are quite heavily dependent on foreign students. So a lot of those come in as well. Mm. Yes. And how has the proportions shifted over the years since from before Brexit to afterwards in terms of how many people are making that move for work or study? Has that changed? Yeah, when we were in the EU, the employment rate of EU migrants to the UK was very high, you know, in the high 80%. So they came here to work. And because a lot of them were younger, hadn't got families and so on, they didn't tend to bring many dependents with them. Some of the older EU workers did, and they brought their children, and children went into schools and so on. But both husbands and wives tended to work in those circumstances. So a very high mm. employment rate among working age ones. What you've got now is that non-EU migrants, prior to these reforms that the government has announced, tended to bring dependents with them. They come from all over the world. They didn't want to be separated from their families. So they bring dependents with them. And the ratio of dependents to workers has gone up a lot since we've switched from EU to non-EU migration. But also, there are a lot more students come in than workers. The number of students coming in outstrips the number of workers by about 100,000. And unusually, quite a lot of those students, particularly graduate students, bring in their dependents as well. So that is what I suppose has alarmed the government. In essence, we moved from a situation where we were importing workers to one where we're importing workers and their dependents and students and their dependents. And that's why the numbers have gone up. So about 40% of those coming in have actually come to work, whereas in the case of EU migrants, it was a lot higher proportion. But, well, you suggested that it was around 80%. So broadly, you can look at it as saying fewer people when they come here are coming to work, more are coming to study, and they're all bringing more dependents. So actually, if you take that six, 700,000 figure that we've got at the moment of, of net migration into the UK fewer of those are working. Exactly. Yeah, that's precisely the position. Got you. So if the Home Secretary then set out this five-point plan to curb legal net migration earlier in the week, what was he putting forward to try and get on top of that issue that you laid out there? Well, I think the penny has kind of dropped for the uh, government in the sense that they were getting praised by people who supported the use of migrant workers. I mean, most employers would say that it's a complex process of getting a visa for uh, an overseas worker. But once you've gone through that, they were a necessary part of the labor supply for the UK. And I don't think that was ever intended. I think what the government had sought to do was to just allow some net migration of non-EU workers into the UK. And they ended up with a regime which was more liberal than they intended. We will ensure people only bring dependents who they can support financially. We will stop overseas care workers from bringing family dependents. We will increase the skilled worker earnings threshold by a third to 38,700 from next spring. So... The things that they have done, one is to raise the uh, salary threshold. You know, nobody will be able to come in on a, a work visa, apart from in certain protected sectors like health and social care, unless they earn nearly 40000 a year, which is quite high, and which is above normal salaries in quite a lot of areas. I mean, one of, mm. one, you know, going back several years, you know, Indian restaurants used to complain that they could never bring in specialist chefs because the then rules when we were in the EU were too tough 
And so the, in hospitality, you know, nearly 40,000 a year is just is, is a very high salary yeah. and that will, will restrict that. The second thing is the, the clampdown on dependence for students and dependence for workers. Now, that applies to even the exempted sectors like the care sector. And you will know that the UK care sector is hugely dependent on foreign workers. Now, workers from all over the world, from the Philippines, from Africa, from India and so on, and part of the attraction of coming to the UK was that they could bring their families with them. You know, mm. so in some cases, you know, both parents would work in the care sector. The children would then enter the UK educational system. And, uh, you know, it was probably a pathway to permanent UK citizenship or permanent residence here. If you close that off, you reduce the attractions of the UK. And of course, you know, the thing that's also attracted a lot of attention is that if a UK citizen wants to marry someone from abroad, they also have to be above that salary threshold. So, 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 you know, the idea now, which has attracted quite a lot of criticism already, is that you have to be reasonably well off to marry a foreigner. So this is a, a lurch back from something which I think was, from the government's point mm. of view, unintentionally too liberal. But as you said, that there are still some of these exempted professions, things that were on a shortage occupation list and, and now is going to be on, on a sort of immigration salary list. One of those, as you mentioned, is people who work specifically in the care sector, where they rely quite a lot on people coming from around the world to work in it. Is the government's hope that with these new rule changes, those people will still come to do the work, but they won't mind that they can't bring their family or they won't have family? I think the government has two hopes there. I mean, one is that is precisely that, that it will still be attractive enough to come to the UK and work. It's not clear whether that will be the case. I think the other thing they hope for is that more UK-born people who want a job will be attracted into that sector. And the reason these care homes and so on and the healthcare sector, the NHS in general, recruits overseas is not because it's easier to do that or because it wants to do that. It does it because it finds it very difficult to recruit domestically. Mm. And these jobs are not seen as particularly attractive. In the case of most of the NHS, you need years of training and so on. So you can't suddenly switch on the tap of domestic labour supply in these sectors. I mean, you know, these employers will all attest to the fact that no matter how hard they try, it's very difficult to recruit local people. They repeatedly failed to listen to warnings about the failure to train or pay properly here in the UK. Twelve months ago, I warned that work visas had substantially increased as a result of major skills shortages in the UK and the Conservatives were not taking any serious action to address those skills shortages. So can the Home Secretary tell us where is the workforce plan on social care, on engineering, on bricklaying, on all the shortage occupations that their total economic failure has left us with? So uh, I think it's quite heroic assumptions that I think the government is using in its belief that this won't trigger a crisis in the Mm. care sector because I think the, the dangers are clearly there. Coming up, the UK government's new plans. A booster shot in the arm for the economy or a self-inflicted shot in the foot? That's in a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. So David, we've been through the very recent high numbers of net migration to the UK and what the Home Secretary has announced to try and bring those numbers down. As you said, it sort of mainly seems like he wants to clamp down on the dependence of workers coming over, basically clamping down on the people who aren't working, who are coming over with people working or studying. But if that then also stops the people who want to come over here to work... The question is, who is going to do those jobs? And we've got this situation in the UK, haven't we, at the moment, where we have actually got quite a lot of Brits not in work, more so than normal. Is that right? That is absolutely right. You know, we've got a rise in economic inactivity, which is not so much older people having a rehearsal for retirement, but ill health has been a big factor. So, you know, it's not mainly long COVID, but we've got... A large number of people, about one and a half million people in this country are economically inactive, not working and not available for work. And does that include pensioners or or is that just people of working age? Yeah, we're talking about working age here. So we're not talking about pensioners. The mm. 50 to 64 age group is the one where we've seen a big rise in, in economic inactivity, mainly due to ill health. Initially, it was due to early retirement and maybe furlough as a rehearsal for retirement. But if you looked at a graph of UK employment, Suddenly, in uh, 2019, it falls and it doesn't recover to where it was before. It's been going up every year. Economic activity has been going up every year. You know, a lot of that was due to women participating in the labour force more. And then suddenly all that's gone into reverse. And it's one of the, I suppose, the most enduring legacies of the, uh, of the pandemic and of the policies brought in to respond to the pandemic. So, so we do have a problem there of increased economic in- inactivity now. The Chancellor, working with the Department of Work and Pensions, has tried to address that. And this was partly a response to problems among doctors, senior doctors retiring early because their pension pot had reached a level yes. in which they couldn't put anything more into it. But also down there in the welfare system, trying to address disincentives to work. You know, with some of the highest tax rates, marginal tax rates, in other words, you know, how much of every extra pound you earn in the UK system are when people are simultaneously losing benefits and starting to pay tax. You know, you get very high marginal rates. So trying to address those things as well. But whether it makes a difference or not, I don't know. These are very big and long-term challenges. And the problem we've got with nearly a million job vacancies in the economy is also a short-term one. So hmm. so many of these things the government is trying to do, many, maybe many of the things it's trying to do on dependence and so on, the problem will be their suddenness, I think. They're coming in in the next few months, And I think employers are going to have a really tough job as a result of many of these things. 
But is your point that, and if I sort of do my back of a fag packet maths, in the long term, is it the case that if you have 1.5 million economically inactive people who maybe could be working and we've got almost, as you say, 1 million job vacancies, if you massively clamp down on the six, 700,000 coming to the UK, you could actually not see a, a dent in the workforce if you just get those people who are economically inactive active again. That is the point. And, and of course, the, the, you know, the number of economically inactive of working age, the one and a half million are the people who are, um, who have, uh, you know, the increase in the long-term sickness. Uh, but there are about 8 million altogether of people of working age who are economically inactive. Some of them are ah. bringing up children. Some of them are, um, you know, we have this phenomenon among young people. You will have come across the acronym NEAT, you know, not in education, employment or training. Hmm. And there are still several hundred thousand of them. So, I think the idea is, you know, we've already got in the UK quite a high employment rate. In other words, the percentage of people of working age who are in employment is about 75%, which is quite high internationally. It's not as high as countries like Germany, but it's higher than many other countries, higher than France, for example. And the idea is if you could bump that up, I mean, if you could get that up to 80%, then you wouldn't need the number of economic migrants that we have. And that that, mm. that is a long-term aim. But I think every employer in the country will tell you the difficulty that they have enticing people back in. And one of the problems, of course, with the older people who have left the labor force is that often it's the employers themselves that are a little bit reluctant to recruit in that age range. You know, so, you know, people over the age of 50 would say it's age discrimination. Hmm. Sometimes it's, you know, I think it's also a consequence of age discrimination legislation because once you've employed somebody, say, at the age of 60, then... Once they're on the staff, you can't say to them at 65, well, that's it, you've got to go. You know, but you have mm. to keep them on until they want to go. And I think many employers are reluctant to do that. So these are, as I say, long-term, quite difficult problems. And also, David, isn't one of the other problems that say you get some of these people who are over 50 and economically active into work, or you get some of these young people who are not in educational training or the rest or education into the workforce it's not a given that there'll be a direct read across in terms of the jobs that we need people filling that would have been filled by migrants. Like who's to say somebody in their mid-50s returning to the workforce wants to go and work in a care home or pick fruit? Absolutely right. The jargon name for that is mismatch. The ONS did some research on particularly people who are of the age of 50 who left the workforce. They were quite specific about the kind of things they wanted to do. They didn't want to work, you know, eight hours a day on a, a supermarket checkout. And mm. principally, it was the kind of things that they used to do. And those aren't where the vacancies are. So I think it's easy for government ministers to throw at employers and say, well, spend more on training and recruit locally and so on. But they've tried and it's proved to be impossible. Mm. So that's why they've had to resort to foreign workers. But is your point that in the long term, this could make economic sense? You could slowly bring down the numbers of, of the economically inactive and slowly bring down the number of people who are coming to the UK for work and even it out and retrain people. And, and that could make sense over time. But in the short term, it's tricky to do and maybe yeah. painful. I think you have a point there. I think it could make sense. The difficulty with this is it's one of scale and ambition. I mean, if you if you look at any um, credible set of long-run economic forecasts, including those from the official forecaster, the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility, they will say that migration, and this has been true of the UK for centuries, enriches and boosts the economy of the long term. 
helps the public finances. EU migration helped the public finances, partly because the migrants didn't bring many dependents with them. So they mm. were, you know, they, they came into the workforce, they were taxpayers and so on. And any number that you choose for migration, the higher that number is within reason, the better will be the long-term prospects for economic growth. So I don't think we want, ever want a future, or I wouldn't suggest a future, where you cut off migration entirely, because yes. immigration entirely for work purposes, because that, as I say, enriches, it brings in skilled workers, it brings in workers with different ideas, mm. it brings in entrepreneurs and so on. So you always need that flow, I think. It's a question of degree, and whether the two to 300,000 a year we were getting in from when we were EU members was too high, you know, we can debate that. But yeah. some migration is good for us, I think, and good for the economy. So if I were to take off my economics hat and pop on my political Panama hat, if I'm a government who wants to get growth back to the economy in the short term, and I also want to get inflation down in the short term, is clamping down on migration in quite a swift fashion counterproductive for my other two aims? I think it is, yeah. The job market in crude terms is going to be tighter, and that will tend to push up wages in certain areas. And the people who get those wage increases will be happy enough, but it will be harder to bring down inflation, be harder to keep the economy growing if you cut off the supply of migrant workers. And it's one reason why I think a lot of people are quite gloomy about the UK's long-term prospects. I mean, there was a report from S&P, which is one of the ratings agencies, to, you know, was pretty gloomy on the UK outlook. And one of the reasons it was gloomy was precisely because of the shift in the balance of migrant workers away from EU ones to non-EU ones where the fit is less good in relation to the needs of the labour market. Mm. And, you know, their view and my view is that you can't easily replace that with domestic workers where there are shortages. You know, we've got, as I say, we've got nearly a million job vacancies. You notice those uh, all the time. A lot of businesses are struggling because they don't have the right number of people working for them. So, you know, I don't think it's good for the economy to do these sudden lurches. You do mm. them over time, I think. You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Sunday Times economics editor, David Smith. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer was Fiona Leach, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. This weekend, Times subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new Behind the Scenes series on Apple Podcasts, just for subscribers on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts if you want to find out more. Goodbye. Goodbye.